This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, the first in our hand, our royal flush in the virtual studio, <laughs> joined by Sally uh, Christie. Hello, hello, hello. Flick f- <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Flick forward. Hello. And Cerise Howard. Hello. <laughs> Uh, she's. I was going to say you are returning after a couple of months away because you just can't resist a film festival. This is sad but true. <laughs> now, listeners, a film festival, I hear you say? Well, yes, we will be doing a deep dive on just some of the films on offer from Myth 68 and a Half, which is this year's reduced online-only version of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which would be currently filling our cinemas. Uh, if not for a certain global pandemic. We will briefly discuss the opening night film, Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, as well as what opening night looked like under those circumstances. Then we'll look at Welcome to Chechnya, David France's harrowing documentary about the brave souls attempting to escape Chechnya's state-sponsored genocide of the LGBT community. Then we'll head for the happier climbs of late 70s, early 80s Los Angeles to relive the meteoric rise and equally meteoric breakup of one of rock's most influential all-girl bands in Alison Elwood's The Go-Go's. And then we'll return to Russia, but a very different kind, where one filmmaker, Ilya Kurzhanovsky, and his co-conspirators have taken over an entire town and transported it back to the Soviet Union of the 1950s to make a series of, of, of films with the first one, Dal Natasha. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So, Myth 68 and a half is like Myth, but not as we know it. Kicking off online last Thursday night with First Cow, the new film from American independent filmmaker Kelly Reichardt. So how did the opening night of Australia's biggest film festival look like from the comfort of our own homes? Did did anyone here catch up with this? I just I looked at the <clears throat> Instagram stories of people attending opening night, but I, I didn't I didn't do opening night this year. I felt very um sad that opening night wasn't as it usually is because we're normally all there and it's one of my favorite nights of the year. And I just sat at home feeling a bit sorry for myself. <laughs> I, was, I was actually um, pleasantly surprised that a ostentatious tracksuit that I'd purchased online on a whim arrived on the same same night, so I got to just wear that. <laughs> and <laughs> kind of felt like a celebration of sorts. Did you watch the film, though, or did you just hang out in the tracksuit? I just got excited thinking I was going back through all my... Um, 
photos of Miff in previous years and um, texting a lot of friends about what we might be watching this Miff. But um, no, I actually felt pretty sad. So I just kind of drowned my sorrows with wine and chocolate, to be honest. Jeez. Well, I went the other way. I, I totally went, okay, what would we have gotten if we were in the city beforehand? Um, sadly, a lot of the, the thing I was saddest about in the night is a lot of the places we would have gone to, like Shandong Mama or Transformer or something, none of them delivered a Coburg. So <laughs> that was the suckiest bit of my night. So we ended up ordering wonderful 400 gradi, ordered a, a bit of a, a you know, three-course meal um, and watched First Cow. And it was bloody marvellous. I Look, I mean, it's not the same going to, obviously going to the opening night, hanging out with everybody, having a quick drink before sneaking out the back door is our usual want. Um, it would have been great. But, uh, yeah, but I think... I think Miff tried their level best to kind of create an opening night atmosphere. They did program a welcome to country um, from none other than Uncle Jack Charles, who was in fine form, as well as uh, obligatory opening night speeches from Miff's chair to Teresa uh, Zolnierkiewicz and artistic director Al Kossar, although it was for about nine or ten minutes as opposed to the usual 30, so that was merciful. Um, <laughs> no offence to the speakers. Um, <laughs> But uh, what was very cool, and, and there was a quick and quirky introduction from Kelly Reichert and co-writer John Raymond as well. The best thing was a 25-minute Q&A between Reichart and MIF co-head programmer Kate Fitzpatrick um, to be viewed uh, post-screening. That was, that was my favourite thing. It was a really great Q&A. Um, so, yeah, so we sort of, you know, just had the, uh, the nice dinner, some wines. We've been having to watch MIF and what we call Cinema 2. Uh, in our house. I love that you've got a name, you've started naming your, your different cinema. Yeah, because Cinema One is the television. And the trouble is it's a Sony Android TV and we have everything else in our house is Max. So it's like we can't use a Chromecast properly and Apple TVs are too expensive. So it's like Cinema Two. Cinema Two is the office computer, uh, which has got quite a nice screen. So, yes, so we uh, settled into Cinema Two to watch First Cow, which I've got to say... It took a pandemic. Now, I, I have to admit, I didn't get to see wildlife because I was overseas and I have not caught up with the Australian dream yet. So I'm just going to go ahead and make my crack knowing that it's that it's uh, up to date as of 2017, that it took a pandemic to get Miff to have a decent opening night film. Wow. Because First Cow is wonderful. It I was is. thinking that Australian dream was great. Um, yeah. Wildlife. I second that. Yes, so. Oof. If we just say fiction features, like exclude docos, yeah. it's got to be the best fiction feature opening since, what, the, the Sapphires? It's so great. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's essentially this lovely, sensitive frontier drama, very Kelly Reichardt. It's a low-key heist film as well in ways that I won't reveal about two gentlemen finding friendship in an emerging America already ruled by brutes. Uh, because it's Kelly Reichardt, characters are developed subtly through small gestures and shared moments. And Reichardt and his co-screenwriter and, and novelist, it was actually based on a, a novella uh, by John Raymond. They've created two wonderful people here in Cookie, played by John Magaro, and King Lou, played by Orion Lee, who can't help but earn our affections almost immediately. Uh, between its sweet central relationship, class commentary, painterly compositions, surprising suspense. There's some bits in this film that are really nail-biting. 
and lasting poignance, the ending is a little bit of a gut punch. Um, this is among Reichardt's very best work in an already strong career, and the cow is bloody adorable. <laughs> Aren't cows always adorable? <laughs> They've got such beautiful eyes. They do. Actually, um, following on from our last week's episode, I decided to rewatch The Revenant recently. Mm. So I just watched that when I was watching the trailer for First Cow, and it just seemed so far from the world of <laughs> The Revenant, which is obviously so brutal and... Um, uh, bleak, and then first cow just looks amazingly wholesome and earnest. But oh, I'm oh, very keen to check it out. It's beautiful, um, but it's it's the thing. It's not sentimental. Like it's really like Reichardt doesn't really do sentiment. Like I don't know if you've seen certain I, women or yeah, um, yeah, I love them. I love uh, Wendy and Lucy and Meeks Cutoff and yeah, doesn't really do that. And it's really it fits beautifully. And it's um, and making a male centric story just really beautiful as well. It's yeah, it, it's a really it's. It's in, it's rocketed in my top five films of the year so far. Uh, it's really great. So that was, uh, but yeah, but it was it was definitely a different experience um, doing opening night from home and closing night. I'm sure we're going to order another big dinner for closing <laughs> night. So you know, look out. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 a different world. Um, but yeah, I, I like to kind of lean into these things and take advantage of what's possible um as much as i you know mourn i do miss the forum i really miss yeah me too that was some of the highlights and and i you shared a lot of photos as well sal but it was so nice going through them and um often it's the spaces i think that's what i miss the most is that um it's seeing those films in those spaces and especially um just being the crowd, you know, trying to get that sense of the crowd as well, how they're responding to the film. But having said that, look, we're going to be talking about some amazing films tonight. I'm sure we all had some very strong reactions. So this mm. is another way of creating that sense of community. Yep. Absolutely. Beautiful segue. As now listeners, please join us on the couch for our first film of the evening. Скажи, пожалуйста, насколько критична ситуация? Дело в том, что мой дядя узнал про мою ориентацию вот недавно. Угу. Он в любом случае меня убьет. Аня, мой привет. Welcome to Chechnya, the third documentary feature directed by David France. is an eye-opening documentary about a group of activists risking their lives to confront the ongoing LGBTQ persecution in the repressive and closed Russian Republic of Chechnya. With unfettered access and a commitment to protecting anonymity using innovative deep fake VFX technology, this documentary exposes Chechnya's underreported atrocities while highlighting a group of people who are confronting brutality head on. The film follows these LGBTQ activists as they work undercover to rescue victims and provide them with safe houses and visa assistance to escape persecution. Cerise. How did, uh, look, now that we've all crossed Chechnya off our travel lists, uh, how did you find this uh, this film? Uh, it was in equal measure distressing and inspiring. Uh, the, the work of the activists profiled in this film, uh, when I say profiled, I even use that term hesitantly. You, you alluded to the deep fakery in this film in your intro. I guess we'll come back to that yet. But now we get to meet a number of people involved in quite uh, elaborate, elaborate and secretive operations to firstly smuggle people out of Chechnya, then give them safe haven in Moscow, 
and, and then get them elsewhere into parts mysterious. Um, and one might wonder watching this whether the very act of filming this documentary couldn't endanger many of the people in it for fear of viewers in later days recognising locations or because uh, the camera seems to dwell on some of these locations a little um, a little longer than made me comfortable. But then I'm surprised the any of them were yeah. shot. I know, and a lot of, actually a lot of the score made me uncomfortable too. He definitely ratcheted up the tension in some of these actually very suspenseful scenes of um, uh, extraction of peoples from one place and, and shipping them to another, which um, has a, an unfortunate um, an analog in, in the fact that many of these people had themselves been extracted uh, to places, mysterious places within Chechnya in order to be tortured beforehand. Um, so in rescuing people, there's no doubt some re-traumatising going on as well. I, I found this harrowing, not least for inclusion of some actual uh, footage secured by activist group, um, which I, I think the filmmakers probably made a few decisions to spare us some of the worst of, because it did blink at times when we could have seen some truly horrific and graphic scenes. Um, but this is an extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable document, and the, this deep fakery, this business of protecting the identities of some of the people fleeing Chechnya in this through digital um, tweakery to their faces in particular, and uh, which is unraveled in one extraordinary moment later in the film. Um, I mean, what, what a, a development. That, that's almost deserving of its own documentary, the fact that this sort of stuff is, I mean, this, this is something that itself requires some critiquing and scrutiny because this could easily, it could be as a, a technology abused as easily as these poor people had been in the film. Um, it's nice to see that technology being used to a good end rather than some of the more sinister ones that is very easy to entertain ideas of it being used towards. Anyway, extraordinary documentary, um, harrowing, but uh, hats off and then some to the, the activist community in, in Moscow and all of their networks spread about the place. Um, unbelievably important work they're doing. It's the first. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say it's the first thing that's convinced me that deepfake is in any way worthwhile. Yes, like yes. Before this was a terrible yep. thing. And 100%. Like, yeah. Yep, my, my first um, time that I've seen it used in a positive way as well. Mm. Um, Sorry, I completely agree with your sentiment. I um, I watched this the other night and um, it's one of those things I feel like every myth there's a film that gets so deep under my skin that I usually cancel the next film that I'm watching. And I had that exact experience when I watched this. I decided um, I would skip uh, one of the films we're reviewing tonight, The Go-Go's, um, because I really kind of just wanted to sit with this film afterwards. Um, this is, as you say, an exceptionally harrowing film to watch and they include a lot of um, what, what's termed these trophy videos mm. and it's exceptionally explicit. And um, I did pause this a lot um, and take a little break and come back to it. And I'm saying that as like a, a straight cis woman and I, I feel like it really made me so aware of my privilege and also just such a brutal uh, wake up to the ways in which heteronormativity and homophobia kill. And um, I feel like this is such essential viewing. And it, um, even though it's difficult to watch and the footage honestly is so raw and uncompromising, um, 
I think that this explicit documentation of the violence and the brutality that have been inflicted on the LGBTQI community um, needs to be seen and needs to be seen not just by people who are, you know, um, engaged in those politics, but by everyone, because it actually affects our entire community. And this film just is so heartbreaking. But I agree that there is this um, shining light of the, the courage that these activists show. And I think that really is what holds this together. And um, the humanity of this documentary, it's, I cannot recommend this documentary enough. I think for me at the moment, it's my standout. Um, and I hope more people see it. Yeah, it's, um, I don't quite know what to say about this film. It completely broke my heart. Um, I found it incredibly hard to watch to the point where I thought that I couldn't watch it, but I did. Um, yeah, it was completely heartbreaking and it's incredible that we do have people like these activists that go to these lengths to help others and, yeah, I, I just, it, same thing. It had such an impact on me and um, I don't know what to really, how to articulate anything about this film because it is, I agree, essential viewing. Everybody should go and see this. Um, and also the way that we were talking about before with the deep fakes, again, that's something that I think that we'll see uh, time and time again. And I know that David France, he's, rationale for using that was that he wanted um, the subjects in this film to still have emotions rather than just blow their faces out. Um, the way when I was watching it, I was aware of this because it says it at the start of the film, but kind of going, how much is this actually transforming their appearance? Um, is the hair different? What's their, you know, their body shape and all this kind of thing. So I was thinking the same thing as you, Cerise, is this actually going to do these people more harm in the long run because there are still elements of them that are recognisable. In the moment where we do have that reveal of um, one person, it's pretty outstanding how much that, you know, everything has been changed on that person's face. It was, yeah, quite breathtaking, <laughs> I thought. So, yeah, and, yeah, David Francis getting some really great stuff out there. Well, he did The Life and Death of Mar Marsha P. Johnson, which was at MIF. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that particular film, uh, The Death and Life of, I think it was in that, that order yes. yep. and the title, but he actually ran foul of some black trans activists and filmmakers, uh, a particular filmmaker and whole community rallied behind her who felt that David France had appropriated a story and... Um, had cashed in on some of his own privilege as a, a white cisgender filmmaker. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, I remember all up, that. Blew mm. up in quite a big way. Yes. Um, I don't think he can be uh, any anything can be levelled at him in a negative way with his making of this film. I don't think mm. anyone within Chechnya could have safely made this film. In fact, there were clearly he had people on the ground. There were clearly the their activist network who were very careful to be, speak only very. Um, uh, discreetly, to say the least, uh, very elusively to the fact they had their people in these mm. difficult, difficult parts of uh, Russia, a remote part of Russia, um, to enable them to get people out of there. Um, but still, uh, yeah, look, I mean, hats off to him here. Any, any damage he did to one disenfranchised community with that previous documentary uh, if that's a blot on his copybook, then this is a, a gold stamp on it. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Um, this is, it's told so intimately and matter-of-factly. And it, I think it does use the videos, but it doesn't overuse them. Mm. And it does 
get out there because this could have leaned so much harder on that and just gone for shock and just tried to beat us into submission, and it really doesn't. It shows enough to suck to show surgically so, just to show how horrifyingly commonplace these beatings are and enough to give you that impression and then spends most of its time with the people who are trying to, to escape, telling their stories with these amazing activists um, who are spiriting people out. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and there's not only deep fake technology but also dubbing. And I, one of the beautiful things about this film, as well as the activists and their efforts to get people out, um, that, that was inspiring and, and these people actually escaping to other countries. The other thing that was also sort of beautiful is that hundreds of people donated their faces and voices to this film for the deep fake technology. Yeah, that is a beautiful it's all, thing. Because mm. it's all composites of different mm. faces to make. And, yeah, I, I found that really lovely. Um, so these film subjects could bravely bring their, this urgent story to the world. And I think that just adds a grace note of beauty to what is otherwise a thoroughly upsetting film. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this I yeah I agree with you all. This is um, this is a brilliant, essential uh, documentary filmmaking. This is why we have it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, see this film. It's it's hard, but 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 absolutely worth it. Um, Welcome to Chechnya is available to rent online via Myth sixty eight and a half until August twenty third. Just head to their website, which is MIF2020, so 2020.mif.com.au. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And uh, I apologise if I sound like I'm coming through a bathroom. Um, I'm sitting in the toilet or something. I am not. I am in the virtual studio. We're just having some mic issues, which seem to keep persisting. Now, join us by the electronic device of your choice for our second film of the evening. We are the first all-girl band that wrote their own material and played their own instruments to be really successful. In the course of a year, we had gone from playing dive bars to Madison Square Garden. The Go-Go's is the fifth feature documentary directed by Alison Elwood. In 1978, four women in their early 20s, Belinda Carlisle, Charlotte Caffey, Jane Weedlin and Gina Shock, and later joined by Kathy Valentine two years later, sprang fierce and fresh from the Los Angeles punk scene determined to make the uh, music their way. After just three years, a gradual pivot to pop saw their 1981 debut album spend six weeks at number one, and they're still the best-selling female, all-female band of all time. Full of archival footage that captures the band's verve, interviews with the band and those who followed them, including Bikini Kills' Kathleen Hanna, celebrate their DIY defiance of music industry sexism, as well as lay bare the feuds over business decisions battles against drug use and drastic relationship changes as punk turned into popular. Sally, I'm hoping your lips won't be sealed for this review because that would make a pretty dull radio show. Alex the seal. Um, <laughs> I had to, I had to. Yes. Um, yeah, this, this was, a, you know, we did music documentaries last week, so another one, and th this was a fun one. Like um, I did enjoy, did enjoy watching this. I enjoyed seeing sort of their move, their transition from punk to pop which uh and of course looking at all that archival footage it didn't seem 
groundbreaking in any way, shape or form for me. Uh, one thing that I did kind of have a little little bit of an issue with was um, I really hate when any anything says this is the first to do this, to do that. There was a little focus on at the beginning of the documentary uh, them talking about the influence of the British punk scene when they talk about the Sex Pistols and Madness and the specials, but um, the slits were left out of this, which uh, I think I don't know if they were left out because it didn't feed the narrative for those people that don't know the slits. They were an all-female punk band in the 70s in the UK punk scene who also played all their own instruments, wrote all their own music. So I'm, I find it really hard to believe that they weren't of some influence here. And, yeah, it kind of bugged me. That I know it's not a, a documentary about all-female punk bands, but, yeah, mm. the omission of them kind of left me a little bit bummed but yeah it was it was it was a fine documentary (laughs) name check would have been nice just just as a side note quickly um viv albertine from the slits has an amazing well a few amazing memoirs and one of those is one of my favorite books of all time close 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 music 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 boys 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 (laughs) (laughs) good title yeah um yeah it's uh, they also do have that careful rejoinder as the first all-female band to play all their own instruments that got really big they they add that they do put in they, that they add that at the end of the documentary because at the start it's like the first female band to do this to do this and then at the end it was like that got a number one single. It's like, oh, okay. So then that's yeah. let's bring it back there. Yep. Therese? Well, look, I really enjoyed it. I was startled to learn that they were quite as huge as they were. Um, I, I hadn't grasped the magnitude of their uh, commercial success. Um, and I'd known singles of theirs uh, without really grasping that they had a real body of work, a few albums. And um so there was a lot here that was, you know, I loved all the archival footage. I loved all the, the early punk um, footage of them live and the, the, the company they kept and and some of the, the truly rock and roll anecdotes. Um, I mean, that sort of stuff is part of the course for docos like this, but I'm glad to know that the Go-Go's were as debauched as anybody else in their heyday. <laughs> um that doesn't necessarily equate to healthy living and I don't necessarily endorse such shenanigans, but it's just, you know, it would have been quite a, 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 a tame doco if there were, if there hadn't have been some um, misbehaving. It still bugs me though that the Go-Go's have an apostrophe in their name. Right, I. same. Yes. <laughs> the Go-Go is? Yeah, I, I, I hadn't realised. So that that's... That the sticks, in my, sticks in my craw a little. You know, it's the big things, the things that I really hone in on. <laughs> grammar. No, it's bugged me all week too, sorry. So yeah. I'm glad it's having that effect on somebody else. Because I type it without mm. an apostrophe and mm. then I keep finding it has one. No good. Yeah, I, I was too, I was shocked by the, the magnitude of their success and their meteoric rise. Like the very definition of the word in the non-geological sense anyhow um, like from three years from forming to the number one album in America um, is quite astonishing. Um, and then they fell apart almost as quickly. Uh, I think it's, it's, this doc is very bright, very lively, very candid. Um, the interviews don't seem to leave anything on the floor. Um, the interviews seem to reveal more three and a half decade long grudges still smarting. 
no, than one may expect. It's like you're not over this. Doesn't that always happen in like every like music doc or even sports doco? They're always just like there's these long held feuds or grudges. Something's <laughs> you still have it. <laughs> it's like get, get over it. You're all rich and successful. <laughs> Jesus. Um, it's it's sort of it, it's and it is in that way as we've all sort of expressed this surprise. It is a timely reminder of just how kind of revolutionary their very existence was in the American music scene. Um, it's a bit of an it's an inspiring call to arms for female musicians. But I think more than anything, this film is an instructive cautionary tale, which should be mandatory viewing for anyone who forms a band. Like this is like the instructional video they show you. Are like, oh, you going to form a band? Okay, watch this. It's like if this happens to you, like make sure you get joint songwriting contracts or, yeah. or, or like have the respect that if somebody's going to write the songs, they're probably going to make more of the, you know, more of the royalties because they wrote it. Um, and, yeah, just things, things like that, lots of pitfalls that uh, young it's, bands can it's avoid. It's interesting with things like that because I'm pretty sure I think it was the Ramones who with their royalties they did split them equally even though mm. they didn't all do all the songwriting so it's yeah it was interesting that the kind of is it should they get more because they write the songs probably or should it be split four ways between the band but yeah interesting that kind of thing there yeah and and that whole thing um i gotta say jane weedland then now and always is adorable yes i loved her <laughs> Um, and you know, like, like, and like silly things, not like not letting her sing the really personal song she wanted to sing. There was like not a single, even it was like an album track. It's like, you're not going to throw a one. Can you imagine the Beatles if Lennon and McCartney turned to Harrison or even Ringo and went, no, you can't sing this. Go away. You're the <laughs> guitarist. You're the drummer. Like that. It's insane. Um, but yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with this too. It's as you say, so it doesn't rewrite the the book or anything, but um, they're all very, yeah, and they're all very lively characters. I've got to say Belinda Carlisle does resemble (laughs) like a Brighton housewife these days. It's very, very strange in terms of the way the, like for someone that emerged from punk, she could not be less punk. Yeah. She's done all of Brighton. Yeah. (laughs) I think she might have. But it's, yeah, but it's, it's, um, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way in terms of looks. I just I'm, I'm talking couture and relationship to punk. Let me just uh, uh, qualify it with that. Um, hopefully, I've dodged a bullet there. No, not at all. And um, just keep talking. Yeah, great. <laughs> the Go Go's would be available to rent online via six, Myth sixty eight and a half until oh well, it would be available to rent online via Myth sixty eight and a half, except it's sold out. Um, so, It'll resurface, surely. That, that's yeah. not the last we've seen of this doco. And, and I expect the, they may even have a little bit of a renaissance, just saying. Well, they have reformed and uh, are recording new material. And um, reformed. And re- reformed <laughs> and Seemingly. reformed. Mm-hmm. The, the, the track over the end credits was quite catchy, actually. That was fabulous, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Quite surprised. Like, kids still got it. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. 
Now join us in the living room, but leave all modern technology at the door. You are in 1950s Soviet Union when you enter for our final film of the evening. Please offer to lay himself on the altar of the science and sacrifice his liver to the human good. Oh, it's wonderful. Yes, that's worthwhile drinking. Dao Natasha is the first of 13 feature films and four miniseries in the massive Dao project devised and directed by Ilya Kurzhanovsky. Joined here by the first of a handful of co-directors, Yekaterina Otel. If you don't know what DAO is, it's spelled D-A-W, and it's completely worth Googling. Uh, here's a quick primer. Like a real-life synecdoche in New York, Kurzhanovsky and his crew took over a village in the Ukraine back in 2008, decked it out in period-perfect 1940s Soviet decor, hired hundreds of actors and crew members to populate and live in the town for up to three years in a sort of alternate reality, leaving anything modern behind. No mobile phones or computers or tech of any kind. Assigned them characters and roles and filmed them 24-7 in loosely scripted circumstances, all inspired by the life of Soviet physicist and Nobel laureate Lev Landau, as well as true-life scientific experiments conducted by the Soviet military from World War II onward. In, the, in this first film, we meet Natasha, who runs the canteen of, secret Soviet, uh, of a secret Soviet research institute. She has a love-hate relationship with her younger assistant, the doctor's daughter, Olga. The two gossip, bicker, and even physically fight one another in the canteen after dark, a fraught surrogate mother-daughter relationship with, at times, a borderline erotic intimacy. One evening, after getting drunk with all the scientists and apparatchiks who are celebrating a successful, somewhat sinister experiment, Natasha sleeps with Luke, a visiting French scientist. The next day, Natasha is pulled in for brutal, invasive questioning by Soviet security services. Flick. On paper, this film, hell, this entire project, just screams flick forward at me. (laughs) Was it an enticing first step into a larger world? I don't know how to take that, um, Paul. <laughs> but it, but annoyingly, you are very accurate. And this is <laughs> definitely right up my alley. I actually watched this with my partner, and halfway through it, he was like, "I don't want to watch this anymore. I have to step out." <laughs> and I was so shocked. I was like, "What? Really? You're not into this?" Uh, yeah. Look, this is really. Uh, it's pretty bleak, and it's it's a really curious film, and the whole setup, like. I'm glad that you gave a bit of an introduction for listeners who who aren't aware of this because um, it's such a bizarre setup that it really deserves a spotlight of sorts. So um, I encourage people to kind of look into this project a bit further. It's really um, creatively and ethically uh, very curious. Uh, look, I think that this film is really uh, exceptional. It's kind of it's been an interesting start for me for me because. But all these films have really affected me and I don't know if it's for, from being in lockdown and this being kind of the, the only kind of thing I'm watching at the moment. But um, this is exceptional. I really thought the relationship between these two women, so Olga and um, Natasha, was so well communicated. It's so it's such a complex and contradictory relationship where at different moments they kind of seem very close and intimate and, and share this... Um, 
you know, really, um, you know, emotional support and, and, and really loving warmth to one another. And then, uh, yeah, attacking one another, undermining each other. And um, it's kind of a, a curious thing. And it reminded me a little bit of the way in which a lot of times people, um, it's not as though you're drawn to certain people, but you're just stuck in a situation with these personalities. So the kind of tension that builds. And it's an incredibly claustrophobic film. Um, the workplace, but also uh, in the second half of the film, it gets a whole lot more contained. And it's surprisingly uh, very violent and has a lot of sexual violence in this film as well um, towards the end. So just as a sort of um, content um, warning for people watching this. Uh, it's really powerful performances, though. I thought that there's... Um, sort of they include like real sex scenes in this film and I think that that actually adds a certain amount of powerful realism to this. I think it's very, I think it was, um, it's interesting how the formal uh, decisions really are so closely entangled in the story that they're telling and this sort of invasion of privacy, not just on the actors Mm. but also the way in which every aspect of your life um, in a totalitarian system is is invaded and made and made sort of property of the government. So I thought that the, these decisions of um, whether or not it's ethical are really interesting. I think that the film, because of what it's dealing with, it's really well positioned to, to kind of um, complicate that. And I, I don't think it resolves it. I think it's just more a, a really brutal, uh, sometimes very stark picture of of this time um yeah I was I was into it for sure and uh, really um I just I, I feel like so often we don't see older people on screen and Natasha's not particularly old but I actually found that really really refreshing just as a side note um just having um a woman who who's much older and she she's very she's a very attractive woman but I think that there was something about um just uh, yeah I just was glad to spend that that time with her I thought she was a really engaging character Sorry. Yeah, look, I watched this just after Welcome to Chechnya. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a double. Yeah. Jesus. And in their own way, they're, they're quite apt companion pieces mm. for one another. Both are about the overextension of the state and control and uh, violence and um, policing of sexuality and paranoia and fear. And, uh, you know, this... Um, this Dow project, this this monstrous thing, so many years in the making. I think it was about ten or so years in the making, and then about three years of actually populating this little 1950s Stalinist-style Soviet village. Hmm. Uh, the, the output of it, there's going to be such a flood of films. Uh, if they are all of a similar tenor to this, that's um, some binge watching. I don't want to do anytime <laughs> soon. I mean, I'm happily. <laughs> happily watch them because I love a bit of Eastern European miserabilism and um but that would be overwhelming to sit down for one after another after another hopefully there's some light for all the shade from this particular film which I I presume is the first entry in it that that myth haven't just arbitrarily picked one of the many um it's the first one the filmmakers have put out there yeah the one they premiered at Berlin yeah I don't think it's the only one that's already had some sort of an airing. Um, no, actually, half the series you can now go to the Dow website and watch for mm. three. You can rent them for three dollars each. I, I do have a notion that most of them, if not all of them, will be group yet. But um, 
Uh, well, look, I, I found a lot to admire in this, and certainly the commitment of everyone involved can't be faulted. The performances are extraordinary. It does feel all very lived in. It doesn't feel like some sort of a set in the slightest. Um, and uh, those dy interpersonal dynamics are very real and sort of novelistic in their detail. It really, you do spend a lot of time in, in individual scenes with people antagonising one another, which isn't necessarily everyone's idea of a good time, but it's, it's compelling when the actors are as good as this and get a sense that they're able to, to work fairly freely. They're not just uh, following some script by rote, but are really being. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, they're all playing characters who share their own names just to add an extra level of uh, a lack of distanciation between reality and, and uh, theatricality here. So this is immersive and it is grim. But, you know, if you love Eastern European miserabilism, this is some primo <laughs> material. So... <laughs> It's yeah. funny you say theatrical. I I agree. It very reminiscent of experimental theatre of your uh, experimental European theatre of the sixties and seventies, with a bit of Lars von Trier thrown in. Yeah. Um, it's I, I've got to say. I mean, you both been talking about how grim it is. I thought some of it was actually really funny, uh, particularly early on. Um, there's the scene where everyone's getting drunk and it just turns messier and messier. Um, there's the whole relationship between that. At one point, Natalia and Olga have a, a literal, like a push and shove damn near fist fight in a canteen, which is incredibly awkward, like awkwardly darkly funny in the way that only European cinema can do. I, um, saw, I saw that one section of it. I think I've, I've seen the first 40 minutes and yeah. I agree. I thought that that bit was was very very entertaining. It was very funny. Well, I'll stick with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it as well. Is like in two parts. Yeah. <laughs> so my partner was like saying he was leaving. I was like, it's probably good you didn't stay for the second half. Oh god, yeah, you're <laughs> right. <That's> dark. <laughs> when the interrogation starts, it's like it's it sort of becomes. It's all within that world. It feels very organic, but it is almost another movie. Mm. Um. You kind of go from this, you know, this love-hate frenemy relationship and, you know, and, and there are moments of warmth within that. Mm. Um, and and I think Natalia Bre uh, Berezhnaya, uh, who plays Natasha, is outstanding. Mm. I cannot imagine how difficult this was to film, mm. um, what, where she had to take herself to, to, to go through this. I mean, yeah, she's got fight scenes. She's got a, a graphic real sex scene. She's got this horrifying interrogation scene. Like... The stuff she she goes through is incredible. That real sex scene at least has some tenderness. It uh, does. Um, it really yeah. does. Yeah. yeah, I think that's actually what I liked about it the most and I was thinking a lot about the purpose behind that is you're actually able to capture something quite beautiful in that moment and I mm -hmm. wonder whether a simulated sex scene would actually have that level necessarily. And I love your point, Flick, about the invasiveness of the state, like state surveillance mm -hmm. and this almost echoing that is mm -hmm. such a great point. Um, yeah, I, I think I thought this was kind of a mad, darkly funny, eventually quite confronting, but always engrossing character study. And it reminded me also of plays like Genet's The Maids, like with that sort of interplay, particularly between the two women, mm. um, that also kind of serves as a first-hand trip to the asphyxiating, you know, mind screw of just living day to day in a totalitarian society, ready and all too willing to destroy you at any moment. Mm. Um, if you've got the stomach for it, I highly recommend this film. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I really loved it. 
I'm uh, looking. Watch the rest of it now. Yeah, uh, I think I think we're almost thinking like a one a week or one a fortnight. Try that, see how that works. You couldn't do more than more than one in a day; it would destroy you. But looking forward to exploring more nooks and crannies that this world has to offer. So, Dow Natasha is available to rent online via Myth sixty eight and a half until August twenty third. Just head to their website, which is two zero two zero dot dot com dot au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Cerise Howard, Flick Ford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And Radiothon is coming, as that uh, as, as that announcement um, signaled. Uh, our own Radiothon show is in a couple of weeks on August 24th. Of course, Radiothon this year may be the most important in our history, given circumstances and everything that's uh, gone on in the world. So please, if you are in any sort of position at all, and we realise that not everyone is, and that's totally okay, but if you are in any position at all to continue supporting Triple R. Uh, in any way, uh, please do so come Radiothon. So on the first of our two specials looking at the films of Myth 68 and a half, we took a quick peek at First Cow, then reviewed Welcome to Chechnya, The Go-Go's, and Dal Natasha. But now we wanted to take a quick whip round the table, a lightning round, if you will, with some individual festival recommendations, if we've had time to watch anything else. Um, shall we start with our special guest star, Cerise Howard? Sure, why not? Um... Saw a wonderful documentary a couple of nights ago, Born to Be, from director Tanya Cipriano, uh, a very inspirational documentary that resonated very deeply with me. Um, it's about a, a surgeon in New York City who is uh, something of a almost a, a saintly figure for doing extraordinary work in the realm of gender affirmation surgeries. And it's a, a doco that profiles not just him, um, but various of his clientele who very um, kindly and, and generously and bravely show something of their transitional journeys. And uh, for, well, I, I, I was um, more than tearing up throughout much of this, this really beautifully made doco, very well measured, um, paints a beautiful picture of, of work done and often underappreciated by the wider medical community. And it, it, you know, it speaks to me very, very personally as a, a trans woman, so there is that. But um, with my critical faculties still intact, I would recommend this film to anyone who actually wants a feel-good doco and, and um, unambiguously feel-good documentary experience this myth. And I'll give another shout-out to one other, if I may, to um, a whole different sort of film, uh, a lovely animated feature, uh, Marona's Fantastic Tale from uh, Romanian animator Anka Damian. I've seen a previous animated feature of hers before that was incredibly Eastern European miserabilist um, about a Kafkaesque experience had by someone in hospital who had become a non-person somehow bureaucratically and therefore couldn't be treated. And um, it was just incredibly depressing. But in terms of its animation, incredibly inventive. And so is this one. This is a lovely story, which admittedly is told from a dog's equivalent of a deathbed. Um, but looking back to a, a life lived, a little doggy, uh, I defy anyone not to be incredibly touched by this. I feel really, like I'm going to cry just. Re- <laughs> yeah, this really, really beautiful film, um, beautiful narratively and incredibly stunning 
Um, gorgeous animation, beautiful visuals, extremely expressionistic, uh, vibrant, funny, but also sad and, and very moving. Pet lovers don't have to be a dog person more than a cat person. Just get on it. It's gorgeous. That's a owner's fantastic tale. Flick? Um, yeah, sorry, I was just kind of taking taking note of those two films. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually decided to dip into some shorts because I feel like they always kind of get put to the side and um, when there's so many big, you know, feature-length spotlights uh, films. So I, I thought I'd look at some of the shorts bundles that are available and a lot of them are free, so I encourage you all to check them out. So these two shorts are from the Australian Shorts Package, um, which are presented by Film Victoria. Um, they The package sort of ranges from films from like three minutes to about 16 minutes, so you can easily kind of fly through them pretty quickly. Um, so the first one, and both of these films are actually from Melbourne um, filmmakers. So the first one is Objects of My Disaffection. It's written, directed and produced by Sarah Jane Woolahan. And it's about this um, couple that are separating and the it goes through all these different objects um, that they've purchased together and kind of it's got this real punk sensibility to it. I don't know how to describe it, but... It's really, um, yeah, the main actor, Dana Mitlands, is this woman who is just like you just sit with her chaotic rage for the 12, 15 minutes it goes for and it's got a fantastic soundtrack to it and it's interspersed with all this like kind of jangly experimental music and the the image itself is sometimes painted with this like blood red paint. Um, I think it's just a really fantastic study of uh, the grief but also the rage after a separation and um, I just really enjoyed it. It's quite fun. Uh, it's dark, but it's fun. It's got like a lot of um, wonderful kind of feminist rage to it. So that one I highly recommend. It's called Objects of My Disaffection. And the second short I'm going to talk about is written and directed by uh, Melbourne locals Mikey Leonard and Jamie Helmer. Uh, it's made, um, it's about this like 20-something 20-something guy who has these kind of strange, uh, unexplained violent impulses um, but he finds this kind of solace in diving underwater. And the film premiered at last year's uh, Venice Film Festival. It's really beautifully shot and the lead performance by Nicholas Denton is surprisingly affecting. Um, he's really able to harness this kind of like quiet intensity and there's this darkness um, lurking just beneath the surface. Um, Jesse Warren composed the score for this and it just really speaks to this like inexplicable inexplicable aggression that kind of constantly threatens to come out. So that's the diver and objects of my disaffection. And they are in the Australian Shorts package, yeah. which is actually sold out. Oh, has it? Yeah. Oh, that's good news. But... So, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, well, bad news. Good news. And, <laughs> uh, but the, all the Shorts packages, well, the ones that are still available, are free. Um, there's a little treat in the International Shorts package which I saw as a juror, which is Nimic, which is a short by Yorgos Lantimos. And it's as darkly hilarious and as unsettlingly creepy as anything in his oeuvre and stars Matt Dillon. And it's great. So check the international shorts program for Nimic. So Cerise's picks there were Born to Be and Morona's Fantastic Tale. And flicks were in the Australian shorts section, The Objects of My Dissatisfaction, and The Diver, and mine in the international shorts section was Nimic. You have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's spotlight on Myth 68 and a Half, we reviewed First Cow, Welcome to Chechnya, The Go Go's, and Down Natasha. 
Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 